All right, well, good morning, everyone. Um, I am the guest speaker. I am from a faraway land called Athens, Ohio. Um, my name is Josh McFerrin, if you don't know me. And uh, let me just start off by saying it's a genuine honor and a privilege to be able to bring the Word of God to you guys today. Um, and I don't mean to take that lightly. Every time we come up here to preach, um, it's not an opportunity for us to implement our own agenda onto the Word of God, but to be able to read with you guys and also to be able to um, walk through God's Word, um, seeking to understand what God has to say rather than what we want to say. And so to get us started before we get into the text for the day, um, I got a bit of a confession. So um, I'm a pretty outspoken Browns fan. Most of you guys know this. And I have this terrible habit. So a couple, a couple of years ago, the Browns, for the first time in like forever, they won a playoff game. They beat the Steelers in spectacular fashion. And my first reaction when that game was over, it wasn't to celebrate. It wasn't to rub it in my father-in-law or my wife, who was also a Steelers fan. I went to the Steelers' social media pages just to see all of the fans who were freaking out, and I just scrolled for like five, ten minutes. It was glorious. I have, a, I have quite a terrible habit of looking at social media, team, like sports teams, social media accounts after a big loss. When the Suns blew it against the Mavericks, Suns fans were going nuts. It was hilarious. Um, it's kind of a terrible habit, but um, I know another example of well, it's a specific example of fans going nuts that I think is really interesting is when a team loses, a lot of times what they'll say is, there'll be a ton of comments that say, this team, or insert team here, versus refs. And it'll just be like, Browns versus refs. Or if the Steelers lose, Steelers versus refs. Or Buckeyes versus refs. And what the fans who are commenting these things are trying to say is they're trying to say that the refs had a bunch of terrible calls during the game. They blew a bunch of calls, and it almost seemed as if the refs were competing against the team that uh, they essentially screwed over. And I'm, in, I'm pretty guilty of believing this too, especially when you're a Browns fan. You need to find ways to cope with decades of fan depression, anger management issues, and screaming into a pillow. However, if we're being honest with ourselves, regardless of what team we like, most of the time, our team could have just done a lot better. Um, and the Browns could have done a lot better. Um, in a similar way, Scripture makes it clear that there is a this separation between um, us and God for some reason. And a lot of times, people in our culture will look, for a, look to a variety of reasons um, to get around this. Um, we'll say that God is too judgmental. We'll say that um, our circumstances led us into sin, out of our control. Um, or we'll say something else entirely. And we look for every opportunity to put the blame elsewhere, elsewhere rather than looking into um, our own hearts. And we try to suppress these things. And so with all that being said, we're going to be going to Genesis 3 today. So if you guys have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 3. We're going to be going through the whole chapter. Um, but our main idea is this. This is our, this is our big idea for um, all of Genesis 3. Our treason and God's faithfulness are both greater than we can imagine. Our treason and God's faithfulness are both greater than we can imagine. This is not a contradiction. And so to expand on this text further, and this main idea faithfully, uh, we're going to identify the problem that we have created and the solution that 
we are blessed with by God, the solution that he offers us. And so the problem is this, it's sin. And so you might be wondering, well, what is sin? We all have these ideas, our culture has a lot of ideas as to what that word means, what that, um, how we would personally define it. And so we're going to go through Genesis 3 just to get an idea as to what sin looks like. And so, um, again, turn to Genesis 3. And I know when we think about this text, a lot of times we think, oh, Genesis 3, the fall, this is where Adam and Eve screw up, and that's all there is to it. But if we don't read slowly, there's a lot that we can miss in this text. There's a lot that we can miss about what sin is, about our own hearts, um, and how we are not far off from how Adam and Eve behaved. And so last week, we left off with finishing the two ch- uh, the the second of the first two chapters of Genesis. And the idea painted in those chapters is one of God being in perfect communion with man and woman. There was no pain, suffering, wickedness, any of it. But because of us, all of that has changed. And so starting from verse 1, we're going to read just verses 1 to 5 to start ourselves off. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Stop right there. And so to get us started, here's the first point uh, coming out of that main idea, and it's this. Sin is a manipulation of God's word. Sin is a manipulation of God's word. So immediately after last week's text, which concluded uh, with the intimacy between God and creation, this serpent is introduced, and it's depicted as a member of creation. And while it is not directly identified as Satan in this text, there are some pretty good hints that would seem to indicate that this was um, Satan himself. Uh, first of all, the thing literally talks to a woman, so there's that. Um, the fact that she didn't freak out, I don't, I don't know how to respond to that. Um, and then we have texts such as uh, Romans 16.20, where the Apostle Paul uh, says the following to the church in Rome. He says, uh, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And this is very similar to another crushing that we're going to see in Genesis 3 that involves this serpent. Then we also have Revelation 12, 9, um, where the author of Revelation says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So it gives us a pretty good idea of who this is. And the intentions of the serpent are clear almost immediately. We might think of, the, uh, that, of that first verse in uh, verse 1 where he's asking, like, did God really say uh, that you couldn't eat of anything? We might think of that as an innocent question. But he asks if God actually said they couldn't eat of any tree in the garden. And then the response from the woman in verses 2 and 3, where she tries to explain to the serpent what God commanded, she, well, here's what's interesting. She doesn't say what God said, and neither does the serpent. The serpent asked if they were unable to eat of any of the trees, and the woman added to God's command from Genesis 2. The woman says, uh, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, 
lest you die. It may seem like such a small detail that neither shall you touch it. That piece was not in the Genesis 2 um, uh, command. It might seem like such a small detail. Some might argue it's nitpicking. But some scholars indicate that just by her response, something else is going on here. And so this is Gordon Wenham. He's a scholar in religious studies from the UK, and this is in his, uh, the World Biblical Commentary. Uh, he says the following. These slight alterations to God's remarks suggest that the woman has already moved slightly away from God toward the serpent's attitude. The creator's generosity is not being given its full due, and he is being painted as a little harsh and repressive, forbidding the tree even to be touched. Then obviously we have the remainder of this portion where the serpent tells the woman that they will not die and that uh, they will be like God if they eat of this tree. So here's the kicker with that, though. Some will argue, there, there are some people out there that will argue this, that God is lying in this creation account. And they'll say the serpent was right, that God withheld information um, from Adam and Eve, and the serpent was just speaking truth through those lies. And they'll say, well, as, you know, as we'll get later into this text, they'll say, well, the woman and the man do not immediately die, even though God says in the day they will die. And they do seem to have some level of increased knowledge in good and evil after they eat of the fruit. So this invites us into a question, and that's, did God lie? The short answer is this. It's that we are far more deceived as human beings by half-truths than we are by lies. First of all, in verses 4 and 5, he says that the serpent says that they will be like God if they eat from the tree, but they already were made in his image. They already had dominion. They already understood the need to obey God. And the only things that really changed in terms of the wisdom that they received were that they, were, they became naked and ashamed. Secondly, while on that day they did not die physically, they did die spiritually. Uh, T. Desmond Alexander in his ESV study Bible commentary, he says the following. He says, uh, their eyes, Adam and Eve, are indeed opened and they come to something, but it is only that they're naked. They know good and evil by experience, but their sense of guilt makes them afraid to meet God. They have become slaves to evil. And while they do not cease to exist physically, they are expelled from the garden sanctuary and God's presence. Cut off from the source of life and the tree of life, they are in the realm of the dead. What they experience outside of Eden is not God as not life as God intended, but spiritual death. And then third, the serpent says, they shall not die, which, while they didn't die on that day, uh, we have it recorded in Genesis that Adam lives to be about 930 years old, and death entered the world because of this. Uh, we can see this in Romans 5.12, uh, where Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, all death came to all people because all sinned. So... So much for God being the liar here. It should also be noted that later on, after they are deceived, they openly admit to being deceived. They don't act as if, oh, the serpent revealed some special truth to them, and you know they, they know the truth, and they know that God is in the wrong here. In Genesis 3.13, which we'll read fully momentarily, uh, it says this. Uh, I believe it's Genesis 3.13b. 3.13b uh, the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. She's openly acknowledging the deception that she has fallen into. And so while there can be some confusion, the clear understanding here is that God was not in the wrong. 
And so that was a lot to unpack. But the reason for me bringing all of this up is going back to the idea that we manipulate God's word. And even people who advocate for that position that God lied, they're manipulating God's word. While we were not in the garden, we do replicate the man and the woman's actions on a daily basis. I'm not talking about passages that are hard to understand in Scripture. Um, I'm talking about an intentional desire to neglect and twist the words of Scripture and the words of God for our own personal selfish desire. How often do we read the Bible, hear its truths, and simply try our hardest to forget their present? How often do we hope for an explanation of a text that is twisted and shifted to make it seem like God is indifferent towards something that he is clearly not in the word of God in this book? All of these things are the result of a heart problem that we have rather than um, God not being clear. And so with that being said, let's keep moving. Um, Just reading verses 6 and 7 here. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were, knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So our second point is this. Sin is when the creation denies the goodness of the creator. Sin is when the creation denies the goodness of the creator. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, when she saw it was a delight to the eyes, when she desired to make herself wise, everything that Caleb, Fawny, and Joe have preached over the last three weeks just went completely out the window. We spent several weeks going through chapters um, of Genesis 1 and 2 and about how all of, um, all of what God was declaring was good, and that's all out the window now. Now Eve is the one who was declaring what is good. And without letting Adam off the hook, and don't worry, we've got a lot more to say on him, he does the same thing as the woman. He also makes that declaration that God is insufficient here. And so it's interesting that the first sin in existence, it was not a murder, it wasn't an assault, it wasn't verbal or physical harm, but rather a declaration that God's way is not the best way. There should be a slap in the face to every idea of sin that we have in our culture. And if we, I think if we surveyed people and asked them about their personal definitions of what was right, what was good, what was um, good for humanity, I almost guarantee you they would fall into this definition. As long as it's true, sorry, sorry, not as long as it's true, as long as you do not hurt me, or you don't hurt someone else that I don't hate, do what you want. That's not Christianity. That's not sin. Well, that's not the definition of right as the Bible describes. And sometimes we have this idea that as, as long as sin, as long as, well, we have this idea that as long as sin doesn't hurt someone, then it's not sin. The problem is that implies we have an omnipotent understanding of whether something is harmful or not. We don't know, and only God knows that. That's why he gets to dictate. If God created everything and he knows what's best for us all, shouldn't we turn to him rather than just, some, uh, just a piece of the created order that he made? 
uh, we see this with the man and the woman being ashamed of the nakedness and the vulnerability that they were blessed with to have in the presence of the Lord. The wisdom that the serpent promised was not what man and woman expected. They thought they were going to be like on God's level, you know? And then they just ended up hiding. They were ashamed. They were ashamed of how God made them. And then they tried to solve the problem by covering themselves up, making uh, clothes out of fig leaves, and they would later try to hide. All this enlightenment did was make them run away from their creator who desired a relationship with him. But I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty harmful to me. We really need to think about this because there was a lot in terms of sin that we either ignore because we think it's not that bad or that we want it to be good. I thought when I came to college, when I went, I went to school at Bowling Green State University. I was a believer for about three years at that point. And when I got there, I was like trying to brush up on all the apologetics that I possibly could. I was like binging through uh, The Reason for God by Tim Keller. I was reading all of these apologetic-based books, More Than a Carpenter by uh, Josh McDowell. And I was like, okay, I need to know how I can explain to people that God exists and that uh, science and faith do not contradict and that Jesus rose from the dead and he is the son of God. And about a year into college, what I quickly realized was that the problems we're facing today are not questions about God's existence. They're about what kind of God exists. Uh, We don't think as much about whether a global flood is um, geologically, yeah, geologically possible. We think about why would a God do such a thing? We think about those kind of questions. And so just a genuine question for you all. If we, we all have these passages of Scripture. They're not hard to find. They are quite available. And we have the passages of Scripture that we, if we're being honest, tend to want to shy away from or ignore or argue with. And if God says something is sinful, are you willing to trust him with that, even if it's hard? If you're not, you've got to hash something out then, guys. And believe me, you're not alone in this. This is something that we all struggle with. So let's continue, uh, picking up in, verses, in verse 8. Tiny font, tiny font, there we go. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called, them, called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me, uh, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. We'll stop right there. Point number three is this sin is a protection of our own self interest above God's. Sin is a protection of our own self-interest above God's. So as as mentioned, we already know that the first sinners not only rebelled against God, but as a result, they hid from God. The trees in the garden, which were um, such a a blessing in chapter 1, and they were uh, beautiful and good for fruit in chapter 2, now they're a place for man and woman to hide from God. And something else I find fascinating about this is that even in their attempts to hide from God with all of the knowledge they thought they received, they thought they knew like God, 
They thought they could make judgment calls on morality like God. They thought they had God's abilities. They still cowered and hid from the one true God. We can play pretend all we want with thinking that we know better than God, but when the Almighty arrives in all of his glory and presence, we'll know who the real God is. And in their cowardice, in addition to hiding, they also start playing the blame game. Uh, the man gets the heat first because he's called to lead and love his wife, and he failed in that big time. And then he blames his wife. Ladies, you can do better than that. Get yourself a real king. Then the woman blames the serpent. And so are we going to take ownership of the fact that we are sinners, or are we going to find ways to baselessly justify ourselves? In our sin nature, I think a lot of times our first reaction when it comes to um, you know, being challenged on our sin is that we want to like, try to find ways to prove ourselves or justify ourselves or make it seem like you know, we've done enough good things to cancel that out. Right? I feel like I can't, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people about Jesus where it's like, you know, you're talking to them about, about God, and it's almost like their first reaction, and I'm guilty of this too in my own walk with the Lord, is not realizing that, like, you know, we need a rescuer. It's trying to prove that we're good on our own. We, you know, I, I volunteer at the soup kitchen four times a week, five times a week, six times a week. I, um, I'm great to all my friends. Everyone says I'm, like, the nicest person. But even if our works could reconcile us to God, and they don't, our next point stands in direct contrast to that idea. And so let's continue on. Uh, picking up in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Our fourth point for the day is this. Sin must be dealt with. Sin must, must be dealt with. No matter how many good things we do, and for the record, I think we're a lot more sinful than we're honestly willing to believe. I know that for me as well. We all have sinned, and those crimes must be dealt with. Just because you did X amount of good things doesn't mean that that cancels out the crime. And so we have a quick summary of these events I just want to run through really quickly, everything that we just read through. So the serpent is cursed, and there is a specific curse that involves the seed of a woman being in active opposition to him. It's kind of confusing. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. We're going to hold off on that for a second. Moving down to the next one, the woman receives a curse of the pains of childbirth being multiplied, and additionally, God states to her that her desires will be contrary to her husband. And remember what Alfonso said last week when it comes to uh, concerning the relationship between man and a woman. 
um, that idea of equal in value um, with different roles that God assigned them to. Um, Adam would act with this distorted idea as a result of the fall of ruling over her. And Eve would seek to abandon her God-given role despite the fact that in God's created order, he, the Lord blessed her with being man's helper, which is a term that was also attributed to God in the Psalms like Fani talked about. Lastly, we have the man who is now, in the, when it comes to the curses, who will work harder in order to produce fruits from the ground. Thorns and thistles will come up, and those will come up instead of bushes, and it'll be significantly harder to reap the benefits of the ground that God had blessed them with. And then, the opposite of the, ser- the serpent's claim occurred. He would one day return to dust. So, all that about God being a liar, I think, I think we can agree it's out the window at this point. And some of, if not all of you, have probably, probably might have a problem with the severity of God's uh, justice in this instant towards the man and the woman. God punishes man and woman for eating of a tree that they knew very well not to eat, and it resulted in catastrophic separation from God that affects us today. Um, I don't really have a problem with that because this is, in the words of R.C. Sproul, I think he puts it perfectly, these creatures from the dirt defied the Almighty God. And so they had a direct source of all that is good right in front of them, and they chose not to, they chose to rebel. They chose not to obey. They thought they could do better. And additionally, if you believe we shouldn't reap the consequences of this because we were not in the garden and we did not eat of that fruit, we eat of that fruit every single day. We manipulate and desire to change God's perfect idea of goodness, and we do so while seeking to protect our own self-interest. So with all that to consider, all that we talked about, I think this leads us to an understanding of sin with all these different points. Um, this is my personal definition. I kind of cobbled it together. Um, this is not the official definition of sin. You're not going to find this in any dictionary. Um, if you do, let me know, because I'd like the copyright benefits. Um, but uh, sin is the manipulative, deflective, and elusive attempt to say that we would make a better God than God. Sin is the manipulative, deflective, and elusive attempt to say we would make a better God than God. We defy God's commands. We believe we're above him. We reject the design that God has for us. And we act out on our fleshly desires. When we rebel against God, this is what we do. Saying we're just breaking a rule isn't doing it justice. You break a rule when your dad says, be home by nine, you show up at 11. When we sin, we're essentially looking at God face to face and we're saying, you're not good enough. In all of your glory, splendor, honor, power, omnipotence, om- omniscience, the other om, uh, oh shoot, I can't remember the, I can't say it off the top of my tongue, um, but you say, I can do better. I can do better. The sheer arrogance of this alone, by the way, is worth the justice of God. It wouldn't be just if it was not dealt with. Like if you, if you go scratch a car in a junk, I, I heard this analogy once, if you scratch a car in a junkyard, it means nothing. If you scratch the nicest of cars, not even a Ferrari, I'm talking like a Batmobile level of quality, 
there is a significantly higher level of payment that is due because of what we acted against. And because we acted against the holy God with every sin that we commit, it's not just about harming other people, it's about rebelling against the holy God who loves us. We deserve that justice. Yet, here's the really cool juxtaposition. God's going to deal with us through dealing with someone else. And the curses that have been displayed, there's a promise. And it would be a monumental travesty if that was not addressed. So talking about this, this, this hope that we have through God's promise, what is this hope? So we're going to wrap up this chapter, and then we're going to jump back to that fun verse I mentioned earlier. So picking up in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So hearing all of this, in the context of the ancient reader, we have this, they would, they would, in the context of the Israelites, they would have this idea that, you know, this is how we got to where we're at today uh, because of Adam and Eve and because of our, 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 our struggle with sin that has separated us from a relationship with God. And it would be very bleak. It would lack any kind of hope. And it would make them realize their need for God to save them. However, today we get to live in an age where the Savior's already come, and we've already had a, a way made for us. Um, so praise God to that. And so the first note of hope in this, these uh, five verses lies within the fact that Adam names his wife Eve. The name means living or life giver. And this is a reminder of the life which would someday flow from Eve's womb. And it's not just her son. It's going to go far beyond that. And additionally, despite everything Adam and Eve have done, despite their act of rebellion against God, God closed them. And that might seem like, okay, whatever, that's weird. You, just, you play dress up with them? What? He, they actively rebelled against them. They tried to make their own clothes. They tried to cover the nakedness that God had blessed them with. They tried to get away from God's commands. And God meets them in their sin, makes them new clothes, and clothes them. And the best part about all of this was, this is only the icing on the cake. The full giant cake, I prefer red, uh, not red velvet cake, I prefer carrot cake, is back in Genesis 3.15. So I'm going to read this one more time to us. I will put enmity, God is cursing the serpent, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When you share the gospel with others or when you share about Jesus with people, we don't cite Genesis very often unless we're talking about how much we suck and how much we've sinned and all that. All that. 
But this is one of my favorite verses because it shows the first instance of gospel hope. Um, because of how it, I just love this verse because of how it can melt people's minds. It's, um, I, I love bringing it up because this is the first promise of the coming Messiah. There's this hostility between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And from what we can see, the serpent, not the serpent, the seed is not just some average man. We see this mutual wounding where the man will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent's going to bruise uh, the man's heel. So where else do we see someone being wounded in order to defeat something else? That's in the person of Jesus. That's where. Theologians call this the proto-evangelium. It's the first, or in other words, the first preaching of the gospel. The author of Genesis, he's going to later drop hints throughout uh, all the rest of Genesis, as well as um, we'll see a lot of this throughout the remainder of the Old Testament, is this seed promise being fulfilled. We see um, Seth, uh, Adam's son, is being referred to as a seed. And then the theme of childbirth and a son is found in the story of Abraham, with Abraham, uh, Abraham being promised um, to be the father of many nations. And then going down to 2 Samuel 7, continuing on, we see that God promised David a seed that would come from his bowels. That's 2 Samuel seven twelve. But all of these men that I just mentioned fell into the same rebellion and sin that Adam did. But then we get to Christ. Leave it to God to do the job that we never could, taking on that punishment on that rugged cross as an atonement for sin. If you guys hate trying to like take the heat for your dumb coworker who made that really stupid mistake last week, try taking the heat for the wickedness and sin against the holy God that has been um, caused by every single one of us in a grand cosmic act of rebellion. That's what Jesus did. He was that promised seed that came from Eve. And Luke records this beautifully. I won't get into it because it's a lot of reading and I tried and it's a long genealogy. But I would encourage you guys to read Luke chapter 3, uh, verses 23 to 38. Um, Luke chapter 23, verses 23 to 38. uh, To follow this genealogy of the seed. It's, It's backwards, so it starts with Jesus and goes back to Adam. But it shows God's faithfulness to us over... Um, the thousands and thousands of years that separated these events. And so our final point, wait, I already said that, just kidding. So in conclusion, we can solve this problem that God has created by our sin, created by our sins. In Ephesians 2.8, wait, we cannot solve this problem, excuse me, that has been created by our sins. In Ephesians 2.8, it says it perfectly, that by God's grace, we have been saved through faith. By God's grace, through faith, and not through anything that we can do. God made a way to reconcile us through the blood of his Son. So how are we going to respond to this? Um, We need to, first of all, repent. We need to pursue God and his original design. And I think John Owen, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, he's a theologian, he says the following. He says, uh, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And so I just want to leave you guys with two questions as we leave that I really want to challenge you guys to think about. First of all, do you guys take sin, do we take sin as seriously as God does? Do we take sin 
as seriously as God does. If sin caused our world to be broken and set us on the destination towards hell, we got some mad audacity to be complacent in our sin and to not do anything with it. Plus, God put this whole plan of redemption into motion to save us from sin. So if you don't want to pursue that, and if you want to be complacent and you don't think you need to be saved, that's on you and your pride. And you have to really think about that. And I need to think about that daily. Are you living with contentment with your sin? Are you content with um, going out on the weekends, getting drunk, and then suppressing the fact that God desires better for you? Are you content with lying? Are you content with cheating, stealing? Um, bullying? Are you content with lusting after people, pursuing um, an attempt at intimacy outside of the beautiful marriage context that God has designed us for? Are you content with pretending parts of the Bible and parts of what God calls us to do don't exist? Think about these things. And secondly, our other question is this, do you know that God loves you despite all of that? This is not an excuse to sin. This is not saying, oh, well, God loves you, so it's fine. Uh, Paul puts this perfectly in Romans 6, verses 1 to 2. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? It is the hope we need, however. Do you feel the burden, of, uh, the burden and the pain of sin in your life? Know that God meets you in that space. He sees you in all the brokenness in your life. And a lot of it we've caused ourselves. And he still loves you. He meets you where you're at. And he has made a way to reconcile you to him and to his original design. And so with all that to say, I'm going to pray us out. Uh, Jason's going to come back up to lead us in worship. And I just really want to encourage you guys as we worship to think about this God who loves you so much, who meets you in that sin that you are, you, you, you're struggling to give to him. This, or maybe the things that you've done in your past, the skeletons in your closet that we all have. These are things we can confess to him, we can repent to him, and that because his grace is so big, we have been reconciled to us, reconciled to him through his son. And so I'm going to pray this out really quickly. Father God, we just thank you for the cross. We thank you that um, despite our sin, despite our act of rebellion against you, Lord, that you have made a way for us to be in a relationship with you and to be united to you as you um, have intended from the beginning. Thank you that regardless of where we have come from, what we have done, how we've rebelled, that all of that is rubbish because of the cross and because of your grace. Lord, may we come to a place of repentance and humility and a place of encouraging one another um, to seek after God's design, even though it's hard and our world does not like it and we don't like it. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and may you be glorified forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.